And I'd really like our episode today to be sponsored by Cheetos Mac and Cheese. Oh, yum. That sounds like right at the time of month. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, but right. So, Madeline, why is it like... Is that a thing? Why are you so fascinated by this advertisement? Because it's so weird. Maybe I should show it to you. Well, because the product itself is pretty... It makes a lot of sense, I feel like. No. What are you talking about? It's disgusting. Cheetos Mac and Cheese? Yeah, it's disgusting. Like, it's Wait, already so mac and just... cheese. Why would you make it Cheetos on top of mac and cheese? Like, that's redundant. The, but you what? can sometimes sprinkle crunchy things on mac and cheese, and it's pretty right. good. What kind of stoner are you to be like, <laughs> this is, like, redundant? Also, it's, it's not like... It's disgusting, too. It's like the, the, the weird flavors of Cheetos, you know? Yeah. Oh, like, uh, like one hot of them Cheetos looks, and stuff. Yeah. One of them looks like a bowl of shredded beets. It's like purple. It's healthy. Do you know what I mean? It's not healthy. <laughs> Is that your your vegetable category? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but it's I don't know. To me, weird would know. be like Mountain Dew flavored mac and cheese or something. You know what I mean? Cheetos is like so, yeah. It's at least a cheese product. You know. I don't know. I thought you were saying. Okay, it's I challenge you, Dave, to out surreal like uh, Cheetos mac and cheese and put something. <laughs> I'm going to show you the advertisement. Mountain Dew spaghetti. <laughs> okay, I mean, yeah, of course, but you got to check this out. It's it's I've I've forced like so many people to watch this advertisement this week. I don't know what's wrong <laughs> with me, but it's really like it's in the soon your whole class me. will be dedicated to the semiotics <laughs> of <laughs> Cheetos mac and cheese. <laughs> they like the way you stir it. They like to eat it up. They like the way you serve it. Cheesy bacon. They like to eat it up. Remix your mac and cheese. You don't find this really creepy? Okay, I get it now. I get it. <laughs> I I love how like I mean I it's so disgusting how it's like fantasizing of like this is what black culture is. Like, oh, that's really funny. It's really racist. I know. It's super racist. I feel like I feel like they want you to want to fuck the che- the cheetah. Yeah, Chester. Yeah, I feel like they're trying to make Chester super fuckable. Maybe we're back in the Pasolini movie and Chester is like the the visitor. (laughs) Whoa, wow. Brilliant. That is now I now I'm down for Taya Rima. Now I can now it makes sense to me. I don't know. This just this new iteration of Chester Cheeto is really unnerving to me. I it just gets it gives me the heebie jeebies, you know? Yeah, but I feel like it's not that off brand. I feel like just the fact I feel like he was always kind of a little mischief creep, you know? I don't know. Hey. It's, it's like really over the top to me. So I needed to share it. Thank you. I found it creepy. I think it had David Lynch like elements to it, you know. <laughs> like exactly. The cool fifties guy who's kind of creepy in your house for no good reason. That that that's a horror. I, I get it. It just made me hungry. <laughs> Cheesy bacon sounds great. Oh no, Chester. Oh come, no, come serve me up some cheesy bacon and fuck me, Daddy. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> 
writer and cultural critic. I'm Dave. I'm a comedian and actor. Welcome to Genre Reveal Party, where we talk about TV and movies through the lens of genre, its definition, its limits, and what we can learn by exploding them. Each episode, one of us chooses a TV show or movie with spoilers in our discussion, because you don't need to watch the thing to enjoy the podcast. We are in season two called We Don't Need Another Hero. Today, we're talking about Anna Lily Amirpour's Iranian vampire western, self-proclaimed, her 2014 feature film debut, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And we've got another special guest today who's Joe Isaacson. Welcome, Joe. Hi. Joe is a, an incredible Marxist feminist horror scholar, my frequent collaborator and co-editor at Blind Field, and the author of Stepford Daughters, Weapons for Feminists in Contemporary or- Horror. Excuse me. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us to talk about this film. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me excited yeah and and writing the wrongs of our our great lost season one teorema of which we shall never speak except for in relation to chester the cheetah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm gonna have to provide some some opening context for our our chester the cheetah it's gonna it's gonna come back yeah (laughs) yeah um, I also did we I, we did read your you know similarly titled uh, blind field piece. Uh, we don't need another zombie killing hero. Political horror in Dawn of the Dead, nineteen seventy eight. On the surface, I am struggling to connect the two movies super obviously, but there's a lot of great heroes and villains stuff in that movie in this movie and in your piece. And so hopefully we can connect them, but if not, I think it'll be cool to still just have good heroes and villains talk. Yeah. We all have kind of loose synapses. We we, will make connections. I'm sure. Yes, 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 yes. For sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Tina Turner will help us. Oh yeah. Yes. 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 So here's my plot overview of girl walks home alone at night. Uh, Main character, kind of James Dean looking guy, Arash, lives with his heroin-addicted father, Hussein. Uh, There is a drug dealer pimp named Saeed who seizes Arash's car to cover the dad's uh, debt. Uh, Arash steals a pair of earrings from the wealthy young woman whose family he works for. Her name is Shada uh, to repay that debt and get his car back. Before that, Saeed comes across this creepy, you know, titular girl walking alone at night. um, And in silence, he takes her back to his apartment. Uh, An amazing scene ensues, but we can get into that. She kills him, sucks his blood and steals his jewelry. Um, Arash, they kind of bypass each other. as She's coming out. Arash comes in, finds Saeed dead takes his car keys and a suitcase of drugs and cash, which now makes Arash the drug dealer. Um, The girl spends her nights listening to music in her apartment, skateboarding and doing little mischief, doing little pantomimes across the street from Hussein, kind of creeping people out in general. (laughs) So Arash goes to this costume party uh, dressed as Dracula He gives ecstasy to, uh, what's her name, Shada and 
her friend. He takes a pill himself at Shada's request. Um, he ends up lost somewhere, and the girl comes across him. And uh, the, in in one of many moments where, like, I've seen this movie so many <clears throat> times now that this is no longer present for me. But you're there are so many moments in this movie where you're not sure what is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, if someone's going to get attacked, who's going to get attacked? So in one of these moments, she brings Arash back to her apartment. Uh, they have this, like, for my money, incredibly sexy scene. Um, and she exposes his neck. And then instead of, like, chomping into it, just kind of rests on it. Uh, then they meet up the next night. He gets her a hamburger, which she obviously doesn't eat because she a vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, and she they have this conversation, and she's like, you don't know the terrible things that I've done. And he's like, same. And then he gives her these earrings that he still has. Um, she doesn't have her ears pierced, so she gives him a safety pin. And at her request, he pierces her ears. Uh, other big character to follow is Ati, the sort of hooker, prostitute, sex worker who works for Saeed. Um, and the girl and Ati go back to Ati's apartment, and that is where the girl gives Ati Saeed's jewelry. And they have this very evocative conversation about Ati's work and how she no longer knows what it means to desire. So then, oh, there's one other big character, and that is where we'll get into this. So Hussein freaks out in withdrawal, believing that the cat that Arash stole at the beginning of the movie, uh, stole or stole back, we don't really know. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's like, he thinks that the cat is his dead wife. Uh, Arash is sick of his dad. He throws him out with drugs and money and the cat. Then... Uh, Hussein goes to Ati's and forces her to take heroin with him. Uh, The girl appears out of nowhere, kills Hussein. Ati helps her dispose of the body and then tells the girl, you got to leave and take this cat with you. Next day, Arash discovers his dad's body. Uh, He runs to the girl's apartment and is like, you know, run away with me. She's gathering her stuff and Arash sees the cat. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then uh, he and the girl drive off together. He's still clearly very troubled by what he's just seen. He pulls to the side of the road, paces a little bit, and then gets back in the car. They slowly kind of look at each other, and then semi-ambiguously, he pops a cassette into the, the the tape player, and they drive off into the night. So that is my summary. Let's chat. Joe, you have seen this movie before. Yeah. Are you, and you're a fan. Yes, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I liked it even better this time. The last time I saw it, I saw it with kind of a skeptic. So you know how that is. It, it's a little infectious. Um, but this time I could just enjoy it and tune out the <laughs> skepticism. Um, but yeah, Were you I mean, skeptical because of the, the hype around the movie? Because it was... I think like, that it know, was just, it was like, a, it, it, to be honest, I saw it with like somebody who's like an Iranian scholar. So he was really I nitpicking see. like every little, oh, but yeah. <laughs> and okay, so of course yeah. I was just like, of course you're right. You know, <laughs> but, but, um, but, you know, obviously that's not who the film was made for really, you know, so, um, <laughs> so 
Um, but, um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it this time. And, you know, I know we probably won't always stick to the heroes and villains thing, but I do love a good anti-hero. I love the kind of mixture of sort of like a Western anti-hero and a vampire anti-hero. It's like, and I mean, there's so many original like fusions in, in the mm -hmm. film of having, uh, you know, somebody who's in this hybrid position of being Iranian American and, you know, kind of using that liminality to kind of form this, this morally ambiguous monster who's both a kind of Robin Hood, but also, you know, a kind of, you know, you can't totally romanticize her. She does some things that are, you know, yeah. uh, beyond the pale of like where we can just kind of recuperate her easily. So it, she sits uneasily um, and mm -hmm. she's just... Obviously, it's a simple concept, but like a girl walking home at night is the the feeling of dread like every girl has when they're walking home at night and that she turns that into she gets to be the monster. She gets to be the threat, you know, at, at night. And it's not, you know, flowered over with, you know, like her being some kind of Avenger superhero. She's just like, yeah, you guys see how it feels to walk home at night with like a shadowy figure following you and, 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 yeah. and, and, and you, you know, kind of thing. So I, I just think all the conceptual, like basic conceptual stuff is really genius. And then it's beautifully executed as well. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a, it's a real triumph for sure. Was this your first time seeing it, Madeline? Yes. Really? Okay. Thoughts. Yeah. I'm. I. You know. This is cards on the table. This is probably my favorite movie we've covered in any season. Oh wow! The, I fucking really love this movie. Yeah. Um. But uh, that said, as always, available for absolutely any criticism you have of it. Well, I was really. Um, curious about it because I had read about it when it came out, but I also, as you both know, am rather protective of myself when it comes to horror, um, mm -hmm. because I nightmare easily. Um, and I don't know, I, I was almost immediately kind of shocked at how not scary it was. <laughs> um, I don't know if, if you all felt that, but, um, I was trying to explain it to Tuli this morning. I was like, I don't think you can watch this movie. It's going to be too scary. So I went up to the attic and watched it last night, <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe not the right setting. But even so, I was fine. Um, but yeah. there's like the Jurassic, what I call like the Jurassic Park logic to it for the most part, where um, like when I watch Jurassic Park, I don't feel scared in identifying with the children right but you're like okay no the lawyer's gonna get eaten you know sure like the bad sure. it's always <laughs> the bad guys who the dinosaurs find tasty <laughs> you know what i mean um but that is an interesting i was glad that it complicated that you know too like i got comfortable with it kind of feeling that okay she has this moral code that makes me feel a little bit at ease, even like kind of liberated by like who she chooses oh, yeah. to prey on. Right. right. Um, but then, then I was a little bit worried. Okay. This, this is a little too comfortable to me. Um, and I enjoyed, you know, later on in the film, I was, um, I don't know. I was, I felt 
I felt okay enough to not be scared at that moment to, to more just like experience it as like tragic, right? That is she, this the moment where she attacks the homeless guy? Yeah. Where she yeah. attacks the homeless guy and you feel like, okay, she's um, maybe she does have a kind of moral code, but she can't stick to it. And how horrible, I don't know. Um, or but it's a looser that- moral code. Like it just yeah. includes all men maybe. And so she's like, well, you're guilty by association or something. Yeah. And I think at that point, though, genre wise, right, it didn't feel like a horror or, you know, something that was going to make me feel interpolated in some way. It was more like a tragedy. Um, I could experience it like kind of looking at her as a a character study more. Right. (laughs) And not. um, Yeah, whatever. The T Rex, <laughs> something like yeah, that. You yeah. know what I mean. Um, so I, there's little this movie has in common with Jurassic Park, but I do call it like the Jurassic Park principle, right? The, the reason why you don't, why you don't feel scared in that movie, even though it's playing with all these tropes that are scary. Because the bad guys lose. And dinosaurs are terrifying. Dinosaurs yeah. are roaming around. You know, I would I would be worried in real life <laughs> that they would they would eat me, but. In Jurassic right. Park, I know. Yeah, I found no. myself really appreciating that she does that one kill that's completely right. unjustified. Um, <laughs> because otherwise, yeah, it would not be scary at all. And it would be like mm-hmm. kind of reinforce ideas that like women are moral, they're contained, they don't have really ungovernable ap- appetites. Whereas, you know, men are the ones that have, have these like these impulses that that women mm-hmm. can control. And so to show that she's she's channeling it into like eating assholes, but like she it, it is an appetite that exceeds that, you know, like um that basic, <laughs> you know, you know, morality or whatever. And sometimes it's out of control is a relief because otherwise it, I just feel like it would be too yeah. neat and yeah, too uh, sanitized. Um, so I appreciated that about the film. Honestly, Joe, you said eating assholes and my mind went to a completely. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I'm so old. I don't even think about those double entendres anymore. That is so <laughs> no, I like that too. I like that. She is th- that, that moment where she's like, Oh, you don't, you know, first of all, when she's like, you don't even know me, right? Like they're getting, they're getting to this point where they're going to run away together mm-hmm. and it's kind of poking holes in that trope. Um, and she's like kind of pointing out how little they know each other. And he's like, he doesn't deny it. He's like, yeah, no shit. He's like, I'd like to know you. He's like, I think I know a little bit more about you than you think, but yeah, of course we just met the other day and she says, you don't know what I've done. And he's like, you don't know, you know, they've both done some unsavory shit, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that that's really like true in that moment because of that. Mm -hmm. I appreciated that. Yeah. And there's a kind of testing of like how far they'll go as outlaws. Cause it's like one thing that he knows she's done bad things, but then he's like tested like, she's also killed his dad. Right. And right. he knows it. Right. And is, yeah. is he going to still go? And, and he does. And that does seem to be like a kind of 
almost a vote for like romantic anti-hero rather than some any idea of like purity and and heroicness mm. and he knows his dad is capable of all kinds of awful things as well so he's right. just like the moral ambiguity kind of like ratchets up um you know as as it goes i think in an interesting way well i want to talk about style a little bit because mm-hmm. i think the the black and literal black and white nature of the film it lends itself very well to talking about the metaphorical sort of moral black and white nature of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was interesting. So I have this on DVD and there is a special feature of her in conversation with Roger Corman. Okay. um, And it's, and it's really, it's really cool. I mean, he is just kind of like admiring and really lets her talk, which is admirable, but I think she almost wanted like someone May, it, I, or I wanted someone to like have a more lively conversation, but a couple of interesting things that came out is she, uh, you know, I think partially because it's black and white, she mm-hmm. gets a lot of comparisons to Jim Jarmusch. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, I'll be honest. I don't love Jim Jarmusch. Um, she's like, she, what she says is she's like, I like Robert Zemeckis. And I'm like, whoa, that's like a weird, <laughs> you know, um, and she she talks about how her earliest film school was there was a 20 minute featurette of John Landis talking about the behind the scenes making of the thriller music hmm. video and that oh, she wow. wore that out. And I'm like, whoa, that's like really fascinating. But she has this kind of like. um. I don't know. I'm not that familiar with Jarmusch, but I thought that was interesting. She also said Anne Rice was the beginning of her vampire obsession. And we can talk more about the like vampire nature of it, but mm-hmm. I'm curious. I'm sure both of you have a lot of stuff to say about that black and white and maybe can speak more to the Jarmusch of it or like, y- yeah, just the, okay. The other thing that my big analysis of this movie is I'll throw Wes Anderson in the mix there. Mm. I think this movie is like my Wes Anderson in the sense that there are few movies that try this hard to be cool. Like I see it. It's so tasteful. It's so well shot. It's like the fact Mm. that it's presented by Vice Films even kind of like makes sense in a way. And yet I think it like, five viewings in or something for me in a year it still succeeds i'm like it tries so hard and it fucking like nails it to me which is like Mm. really impressive so any of any of that style stuff i'm curious your your thoughts yeah, I think, I mean, I do think I was more skeptical of it when I saw it before, not only because of my friend, but just because um, it's so curated that way. Like, you know, and that's yeah. actually not something that usually I, I'm a fan of. But the more I thought about it, um, you know, she talks about how she's really influenced by just American culture in this very, these very classic ways and, you know, how that helped her as a kind of person who had, you know, I guess she was born in England and then she, you know, obviously English isn't her first language. And she, then she came to central California, which is super fascinating to me because I teach there. Um, And it was like, 
classic American culture. I mean, in that point, it was like the 80s, like Thriller and Madonna, which is referenced in the film. Um, But I think that kind of earlier 50s and like earlier sort of black and white noir also like play into um, that sort of feeling of, you know, she she says at one point, like, you know, I was making it our or she and the cast are all like, you know, Iranians who don't live in Iran. And so it's like it's our Iran and it's our mm. kind of like weird fantasy projection Iran, which we don't actually get to to live in or, you know, and so we have to make our fantasy. And the fact that it's like so curated and fa- curated and fantastical and kind of got this kind of classic film style, I think makes a lot of sense in trying to kind of create a fantasy that's almost like perfect, but like meta perfect, like, like meta film and referencing sort of all these sort of genres and mastering them, even though she's Mm. like the outsider to all these sort of like canonical American films, she's like, does it better (laughs) than most Mm. people do. Um, So I, I felt like it's really appropriate and then just style-wise, I love all the wide shots and the sort of oil rigs and mm-hmm. the kind of like runescapes in the background and um, just the kind of contextualizing this within sort of environmental decay and like sort of oil politics between the Middle East and the U.S. and and without having to ever say a word about it or thematize it, right. everything visually connotated. So I think that's really like amazing about it. Yeah, it really knows what to do with silence too, which I I really respect in a film. Um, okay, I don't like Jim well, and she's hard of hearing too. Yes, which uh, in in the Q and A, she's like, so I kind of need less dialogue in movies. Anyways, so I think yeah. it's really funny you point that out. But yeah, Jim Jarmusch. Or I don't like Jim Jarmusch that much, and generally avoid his films, and so I can't really speak to that. But I think you know you brought up Wes Anderson, and like this is so much more profound than anything that Wes Anderson yeah. could possibly like even dream up but much less like attempt (laughs) um like that last scene and all of the different ways that you can interpret both of the characters motives i'm just it's just so much more um substantive so i don't know the thing i was thinking a lot about was i know that she's also been compared to tarantino and i've been thinking Mm. a lot about like the pressure of this film it was so hyped it's such a huge debut film um that you know the follow-up to it um is always kind of interesting to watch but I, i didn't actually watch it so you have to talk about that dave but i do know that she was supposed to do like the a remake of of click cliffhanger did you read this no, that's like cool. with Sylvester Stallone, but then she right. was fired from it um, because they wanted to make it like an actual legacy sequel with Sylvester mm. Stallone involved. Mm. But the Zemeckis connection actually does kind of click for me <laughs> over that. Like there's some like interest in just crass American pop culture that's really yeah. visceral in the film. And I love what you're talking about, Joe, just kind of like this is this dream world of Iranians who, you know, aren't connected to Iran. They're connected to these ideas from afar. So it's like 
it's refracted um and like i don't know i love the the way it uses the western as a way of kind of like creating that um that palette for it you know um so i was thinking about tarantino um with the stylization and the kind of simplicity to you know like tracking the briefcase you know the the cat, you know, it's this kind of through line of this yeah. film. But I was also thinking about Sofia Coppola. Um, I, I'm kind of like in this moment of rethinking Sofia Coppola because I really liked Priscilla like a lot. It really surprised me. Um, but she does see, like I've been frustrated with her because I feel that she's overly stylized and a little bit Wes Andersony she picks these, I mean, it's always like paging through an issue of Vogue with her or something like that. It's just so beautiful and crisp and like, um, untrustworthy because it's so, it's so aesthetically pleasing. But, um, I, I really found this with Priscilla that she's just dealing with like actually, you know, uh, actual depth in these characters, right? Um, that even though there's that surface level thing going on, that there, there's something that you can kind of dig into. And it is, she does play a lot in Priscilla, especially with, with silence. Um, just these really hauntingly quiet moments where you're, you're just really trying to read um, the characters' faces and re- you know, like use the mise en scène as like like some way to like get get deeper into into the situation. So I think that maybe that feels like a more helpful comparison for me. I think I I mean I think any and all comparisons like the the movie kind of invites like you know there's all those posters on the girl's wall in her weird little basement yeah. apartment i think it, I, I kind of imagine Anna lily amirpour being like yeah put up more posters like mm-hmm. tell me who else this reminds you of yeah i think that the i did watch uh, the, my so i watched dawn of the dead for the first time to to have some more reference for your blind field piece, Joe. I also watched uh, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon, which mm-hmm. is the third or fourth full length, depending on how you classify it, uh, Amirpour movie. Mm-hmm. The follow-up to this one was The Bad Batch, which I don't recommend. Madeline, you definitely shouldn't watch it. It's like a cannibal movie. That was kind um, of my sense reading the yeah. synopsis. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's <laughs> interesting elements of it and it looks beautiful and there's a lot of ideas, but Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon is kind of the movie I, it feels like more of a follow-up to this. It's like, it's in color there's another kind of creepy uh, female protagonist who has the, like literally, I mean, there's even some like very, very similar things where she like the main thing, the Mona Lisa character in that movie can do is like manipulate people's movements. So in the way that the girl in this is like mirroring Hussein's the mm. motions across the road, this Mona Lisa can actually like, 
her the whole thing is that she is a minor like superhero. Um, Kate Hudson is kind of interesting in it. There's an incredible kid acting performance. Have you seen it, Joe? Yeah, Joe. No, I have not. Yeah, sorry, but. Um, but for me, I think it's interesting because I didn't see a lot of other vampire movies style. I mean, you know, there's obviously some some reference, but not like a, a real uh, sort of homage that I could pinpoint. But the spaghetti Western thing was really yeah. strong in it. And I mm-hmm. thought that that's really interesting for the the heroes and villains theme. Ding, ding, ding. Bring it back. Uh, because... Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're sort of meta westerns where meta westerns do have the guy in the black hat and the guy in the white hat and the the good guy and the bad guy and and spaghetti westerns always complicate that and have everybody sort of degraded by the kind of socio political situation and it's also something that's like about America but it's made somewhere else so it's got this mm-hmm. kind of distanced but sort of very formative relationship to the U.S. Um, so I thought that those kinds of uh, references of like the good, the bad and the ugly or something. And then that mirroring scene is, I'm pretty sure a quote of the Marx brothers. Um, There's actually, yeah, there's actually a scene. Well, it's, it's Groucho and Harpo, I think do it together Mm -hmm. where they do those motions. I mean, they, she does it so campily and so comically that I think she's actually kind of quoting that too. So it's like another piece of classic, uh, yeah, classic Americana, but also just showing that she has like a really good sense of humor about what she's doing. It could, it could be a self-serious movie, but like things like that and the cat and like these, like, Mm -hmm. um, I love the, I guess she's called rockabilly, the kind of genderqueer woman who's dancing. These just like kind of moments of like joy or silliness, like really diffuse the kind of, you know, whatever the, the form up the, the somewhat rigid formality and beauty of the film that could be, end up being like a little self, you know, like a little bit like Jarmusch sometimes can be of like a little self-serious about, you know, its own romanticism or something of outsiders, you know, in this particular way. Yeah. It's super funny. Yeah. Like her, like the cat, like the, when, when the girl attacks Hussein in Mm -hmm. Ati's apartment, there's this moment I noticed this time where behind a trunk, the cat just like peeps its head up (laughs) and then dips its head back down. It's like a three second bit and it's so silly and funny. (laughs) And there's the like, isn't there the street sign that has a like uh, ch- ch- the chador is is what she's wearing? But there's like a street sign with like a chador figure, right? That's like almost like beware, girl walking home alone at night crossing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Definitely. I want to just say one more thing about the black and white, um, which is that. At first, I was I was like, you know, does this have to be black and white? Because I guess I get right. kind of do feel that way about contemporary movies um, that are black and white to, you know, signal prestige in some way, right? Um, I don't think that that's what's going on here at all, and I actually really would be interested in watching the follow up. Um, Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon. Using color, you know. I think you could. I think you would like it, Madeline. It's or at least like cool. find it interesting. It's like, it's cool. It's there's another also, um, just real quick. 
God, what's his name who did Pan's Labyrinth? Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, Guillermo del Toro oh, did that did Netflix. The Yeah, she did one of those like Cabinet oh, of right, Curiosities, right. like one hour I remember films, it was really good, it's, yeah. It's so yeah. weird. It's like... I I don't I forget what the name yeah. of it is. I think of it as Aloe Glow because it's like this woman who gets obsessed with this skincare product, Aloe Glow, mm-hmm. to like beautify her, and, and and it starts like shredding her face and just turning into like a monster. Oh, and amazing! Like, it's, it's really like really funny. wild. Yeah, it's really it's pure it's really satire. Funny. Yeah. And apparently, her first filmmaking attempts were recreating advertisements which ties back to this movie because there's that guy i have no idea what he's selling but that infomercial guy who's like talking to wives on the tvs of this movie but Mm -hmm. anyway that's just to let you know about the other ones madeline continue with what you were saying oh no i was just there was a certain point in watching it which is a completely obvious thought but i'm just gonna say it this is a vampire movie and it's in black and white like Part of why I feel that I'm actually not scared also is because, like, it's not the blood, you know? Like, I can't yeah. see the red. Um, I just found that, I don't know. I found that noteworthy in some way. I don't know if you all have anything to think about, but that seems like a really interesting challenge is to, like, do this without the color red. I don't know. Yeah. That's really interesting because it's like, I don't know, it it makes me go very symbolic, but it's like, there's like, the whole movie is like defined by loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's amplified by the black and white. Red brings life into the, the discussion. And so, of course, it makes sense you wouldn't see red because there's no like... Nothing as intimate as blood shared between mm-hmm. these people. Um, yeah, is where my mind initially sort of goes. Yeah, with that. yeah and it's like when Ati like offers her, I think it's like a persimmon or something. There's something like beautiful about it. But the fact that it's just a gray orb, yeah, kind of takes away yeah. the the intimacy that that could or the kind of life that that could connote. And and I, and I think yeah. also like... Um, her power in a way is her invisibility. I mean, that's the other thing th- that is going on. That's so big. It's hard to even start to talk about, but like that, you know, a woman in a chador is, you know, is, is, is invisible. Right. And, in, in like, if you're, but, but also very visible for it. She's like both, but hiding and kind of like exposed um, by, mm-hmm. you know, sort of, either patriarchy or by uh sort of orientalism or some sort of like mm-hmm. othering right there's so many ways that you can be othered if you're walking down the street wearing a chador um but um but in in this it's like a superhero cape right that gives her all this power right that she's re- reclaiming yeah. and reappropriating um but it's it's significant signifying of invisibility and of kind of being able to hide in shadows is part of what its power is right rather than blood or something more obvious and garish or something it's it's something that it goes under the radar in a way you know 
We just watched a couple episodes ago, Interview with the Vampire, which is just um, the use of, I mean, Neil Jordan is just like, it's such an overpowering force in that movie and some scenes, just the blood, like the volumes of blood too. So I guess that that was part of what was sticking in my mind. But before we get off track of this, I wanted to ask Joe because she's also written about The Lighthouse. And it also, mm. I was just kind of wondering if there's anything like, and I was trying to come up with a list of recent movies that use black and white. And that, you know, is obviously top of mind. I also thought like Nebraska, The Tragedy of Macbeth, Belfast, and... There's a film called Passing that just came out, which I haven't seen. But um, I don't know if there's anything you have to say about like that constellation of films or just The Lighthouse, because I love your essay on that. And (laughs) it's like this interesting, like weird, eerie horror film in its own. Yeah. In its Um, own right. I mean, I would. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really also another film that's like very beautifully shot, very um, that give the black and white gives it this classic look, and and kind of I guess almost in an opposite way because it has a really shrunken aspect ratio, so it's like this like really mm. elongated like f- figure, whereas like mm. there's all these wide shots here, but they're both kind of diverging from like Hollywood conventional language of of what your like shots are going to look like in some ways. Um, and so there, I think there's a lot of like sort of beautiful meaning making in both those films, which is uh, sort of punctured in a beautiful way by its like silliness or in, in the case of the lighthouse crudeness and kind of grossness um, that mm-hmm. I just like the kind of contrasting textures of both of those uh, films. I mean, they're really different films in a lot of ways, but they're also um, both of them have like limited casts right so you're just getting the tensions of basically i mean arash and the girl are the main plot mm-hmm. and you're really kind of focused on them although like you said hussein and and ati are very important but you know you're kind of getting this close-up of like two people going through all this um this shit um and it's like it's both like this big tragic narrative and this kind of silly um sort of um playful narrative at the same time um so i yeah. think the, those films kind of go well together that way and the silliness in um girl is so greatly uh kind of thematized by the fact that when arash i don't know if we said this yet but if that arash is actually wearing a dracula costume a dracula. when he yeah. first meets the girl <laughs> yeah and, he's like i'm dracula and he says you, I so won't good. hurt you. <laughs> yeah, and he's yeah, got these yeah, really yeah, yeah. big looking teeth that he keeps like taking out and putting back in again. Um, so there's something about it being both like a serious condition and a kind of artfulness of being able to play with these costumes of being a monster and and mm-hmm. take them on and off and and um, and be in charge of representation on some level. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wanted, think the other oh, thing about those films is like they're both intensely intimate and even claustrophobic but there there's no i mean the effect of the black and white is just there's no warmth right it, there's this kind of estranging effect of of that aesthetic um that i don't know i find that it's so fascinating to think about that specifically with the vampire who's like taking 
the the warmth and life force from from others, right? To like be looking at it in this kind. But of there way. is in so, both of them I, like one moment at least of warmth, like the the beautiful scene that um, Dave was talking about, where they're like in her room together and 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 kind of dancing. Mm-hmm. And we should talk about dancing too, because that's like a constant refrain, I think. But yeah. um, and then also in um, the lighthouse, there's like a, a dance together between the two characters. That's actually sort of like this moment where you could realize they could be on this island just being lovers but instead they're just going to destroy each other <laughs> but um but it all has to be conveyed outside of warm colors right it has to be conveyed by their faces yeah. and their stances and so it can easily turn into menace like hmm. really quickly because if you have something bathed in golden light you can't like change the tone without like changing the whole set but when it's black and white it just can turn on a, a dime i think from kind of warmth to cold yeah. this, this way so that's kind of interesting yeah i mean we can talk more about the genre later or now but to me part of the like the black and white and the the curatedness of this movie also like genre is so forward with this movie that like i the before i saw it it like iranian vampire western those three words (laughs) together are like part of the oh this is like because when you smash them all together the effect is like, wait, what? Like, you know, you lean in and you're like, tell me more, you know? So it's like natural that that would be part of the marketing. But to me, this movie is, and this is almost like part of the Wes Anderson-ness of it, but also what makes it different than some of our other, like a lot of genre-fucked movies will just have this kind of like, uh, I think it might've been Four Lions where we talked about the like, the, the, the smushiness of it or the sort of, I forget what the exact word was, but it's like, you know, <laughs> things like smush together. Whereas this mm-hmm. is like, I will take a vampire lifted out of vampire genre, place it in my screen. I will take the sounds of spaghetti Western movies. I will take some of the spaces of spaghetti Western movies. Mm-hmm. I will take man in James Dean outfit like mm-hmm. as my central character, it's like all of these things. Skateboard. Like, I'm just going to throw a skateboard in. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like you see all these things, like you see it. It's so shiny, but you see mm. the seams at the same time. And mm. that is like really, yeah, is, is really fascinating to me. But there was a moment, Joe, that you mentioned that like I was really interested in which is when he tells her when they first meet Arashin, the girl, and he's like, I won't hurt you. Obviously absurd because he's just a schmo and she's the vampire. But it's it, that scene is so weird because you're like, is she about to hunt him? Mm-hmm. Is is he going to be a monstrous guy the way so many guys are in this? Like, Yeah, you don't trust either of them in that moment. Right, right. Yeah. But when he says, I'm not going to hurt you. Mm-hmm. After that, sh- her eyes widen and she looks at him like he is an alien because I think she's so used to like that actually is an amazing moment because she's mm-hmm. like, guys hurt people. You're not going to hurt me. And that's when she starts to like allow herself to be a little bit vulnerable. Yeah, I, I don't know if 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 either of you 
like if that or the way in which they are vulnerable uh, mm-hmm. made an impression on Ida. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a really interesting thing going on. I mean, that's her arc in a way of like, there's, you know, penetration, there's the, the fangs and obviously male rape. Right. And I think she starts at a point where it's like, either I penetrate men or they penetrate me and it's always violent and it's always, mm-hmm. and, and I, so obviously mm. I'm going to be the one that penetrates and, and that's what she does to Saeed and she, and she also castrates him right figuratively by eating his finger right. in a sexual way <laughs> and then making him eat his own finger. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So he, she's hardcore. <laughs> um, but um but then there is a way in which, um, yeah, it's it's not like, oh, not all men. It's like there there that any relation entails vulnerability and that we have to, you yeah. know, and and that's her opening up herself and 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 being vulnerable. And I think that scene where he pierces her ears is really interesting for that, where it's like it's consensual. It's still scary and vulnerable, but it's like, um, but she's, she's, it's a sweet movie that way, I think, really. And she's willing to open up, but it's like yeah. earned sweetness. It doesn't feel like saccharine or like dismissive of the, of male violence. It's just like, this is a guy that she's, she, she's in a position to sort of start exploring other relations with than just eat or be eaten, you know, kind of thing. Um, and the fact that the earrings are stolen from the rich by the poor makes it like a mm-hmm. class gender alliance, I think, in a way that's really neat. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I love the Robin yeah. Hood reading that you did. I mean, she steals too, right? Yeah. From the And gives the riches of um, Saeed to Ati, the poor mm-hmm. sex worker. So it's like, you know, there's a way in which there's mm-hmm. a really strong class solidarity between her and Arash. I think that's really sweet as well. The thing she yeah, does with not... Shada is so, – sorry, go ahead, Madeline. I want to hear what you have to say. Oh, I was I'm just going to piggyback and say, you know, it, it doesn't go – like, misandry would be so much easier. It could be like a – it could be promising young woman or something like that. And mm. it it's it's actually pretty impressive how it how – it, doesn't go there right like it flirts with that edge and then and i i agree it's also not not all men right <laughs> it's like there's also the the potential there still in the end that that it could turn right but it's just it just isn't going to get go easy like that you know it'd be sorry i i hate promising young woman a lot so <laughs> i'm just gonna like yeah add, that that <laughs> add a shit list <laughs> but it could it could have definitely um meandered further and further and further into that kind of um uh femme vigilante figure or something like that and maybe that's also like it's 2014 and that wasn't that wasn't yet like the dominant trope, you know, but I was, I was really impressed by that. That's all. No, I just, why well, I, I wanted to say that the, you know, with regards to the class stuff, like Shada, the, the rich 
girl mm-hmm. is also lovingly shot in this movie. Like is not like, you know, just a straight up villain. And the, the thing this movie really does is it is like, it kind of turns you into a vampire because everyone's neck in this movie looks fucking <laughs> so sexy. They're just like, oh, they're like, okay. this movie is like, aren't necks erotic? I feel like that is one of the like message, like one of the cruder messages of this movie is just okay. like, you know, like when she, when they're in the, like the disco ball scene where they're like, uh, Arash and the girl are, are first getting together and she like lifts his neck up. It's just like there, you know, it's like so there and you see everyone's like collarbones and, and, and they're twisting in ways that necks are like always exposed. And, and as far mm-hmm. as like, you know, to tie it to interview with the vampire, um, well first like it's, it's just, I find this movie like very different. It's like hard to think of them as it's like kind of wild that vampire is almost a genre because I'm like, this shit is so different. You're never going to get an interview with the girl who walks home alone at night. You know what I mean? She's like Mm -hmm. not very talkative lady. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And interview with the vampire. So like Baroque, and like over yes. the, and like ornate and this movie is so sparse and clean it just like um yeah i find the like vampirism of them to be very uh different and there there's even i'm okay so a question i have for you both how normalized do you think her presence is in this town because <laughs> which by the way is called bad city i should have said from the very yeah. beginning but like because I had the thought for the first time watching it this time that the corpses in the ravine, like, might all be her victims. I did not think of that until oh, yeah. this time. And oh, then, really? like, some people are put off by her, but some people are – she's just kind of there. That's, like, that's just that little weird skater chick. I don't know. How mm-hmm. how normal do you think her presence is to the other – in the world of the movie? Can I just go back a little bit just first, just because you said something that made yeah, me want to yeah, yeah. think about her, her, how she fits into the vampire genre. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. when I think of the vampire genre, like what are vampires? They're always kind of queer. They're always about pleasure and sex. And they're, you know, there's other things obviously that are, you know, contrasting and, and, and there's certain rules around them and everything, but I feel like this movie really makes the sort of pleasure and queerness its own in a really interesting way. And I just, I I was, I hadn't thought about it before, but when you said that thing about even Shada being like lovingly shot, part of it is because it's at the dance scene and those dance scenes are like these moments of, of pleasure and, and looseness. And even though like, drugs are clearly a problem in this town and, and Hossein has, it's, it's, it's totally degraded him and Saeed it's totally degraded. It's not romanticizing that kind of violence either um, of, of sort of, uh, you know, criminality and drug culture, but the, the ecstasy at the party also has a kind of utopian horizon where it like loosens Arash up so that he's, mm 
kind of passive and playful and psychedelic when he meets her and open to a new kind of queer relationship, even though obviously on some level it's heterosexual. I think, I don't think a relationship with a vampire ever can be heterosexual. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, there's a way in which uh, it's, it's not doing queerness and pleasure the way that most other sort of male vampire movies do it. it it finds its own kind of youth culture sort of feminist language to signify a sort of hopeful horizon of 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 queerness and pleasure i think that's really interesting um and i'm sorry that i diverged because that's a really good yeah. question that you asked but i just thought it was really no don't be sorry i think <laughs> no no well, you're reminding me of and the music. music. So, yeah. like, obviously, the dancing and the music are very tied. And uh, I'm just going to call her ALA sometimes because I don't want to say her full name. Please, okay. Anna Lily, don't. I do want her on This Is Your Afterlife, my other podcast, by the way. Because in the Roger Corman interview, she's like, she says this thing where she's like, I kind of think I have this sort of belief that any thought that human beings can have like probably exists. She's like, vampires <laughs> are like probably real. And she's like, and and she's like, I also like don't want to die. And along with that, I like want to live forever. And so that's why va- vampires are attracted to me. And I'm like, <laughs> please come on my afterlife podcast, you know, but um, she, so she was in a band and she had all the music picked out for this movie before it started mm. filming. She played the music um, in the scenes as they were filming. Uh, the, every all the characters had um, the soundtrack. You know, had the playlists like with them. She even says she like one of her. She gets really excited when people are like shazamming during that disco ball scene. She's like, yes, like, and it's also a vampiric thing where she's like, yes, you want to <laughs> like suck the music from this movie and bring it into your own life, you hmm. know? And, but I think, I, I will say, I think dancing has to do with looseness, Joe, but I think it, I think it has to do with the relative amount of tension in this movie hmm. because sometimes dancing is not very loose. As in Saeed's dance, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Like that actor is fucking killing it in that scene. (laughs) Just like his giant like neck tattoo that says S-E-X. And his please kill this man now. Yeah. Apparently the tattoo on his head says Kimbled Persian too. (laughs) (laughs) That is I knew it had to be something like that. And his facial hair has him looking the most like an actual vampire. Like it looks like blood coming down his mouth. And he's just like, and he also watching it this time, I'm like, if you give this guy different like hair and maybe not even different hair, but different makeup and stuff, like this isn't a really attractive guy. You know, he's like, uh, but he's like dancing and doing it. And it's so funny. And the belief that this character has in his own She's silent the whole time. Like he takes her to his house. She hasn't said a fucking word. He doesn't (laughs) care. He's just there. And it's like, that, that doesn't even seem like a stretch to me. Like there are, that could so happen. 
So it's like, well, that does have to do with looseness, but like a total lack of looseness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, some, date like that, where you're just like dancing yeah, for the women totally, and she's just totally. That's kind of my mood. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think from from me, I think maybe that might kind of work, actually. Mm. It could be more charming than like Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, just like a fat guy doing the dance would be like a better. Uh, a less a less uh, threatening sort of situation, but also the tension in the disco ball scene. Like that mm. scene is so sexy to me because it moves so slow. We've got the next. We've got like her looking away from him, and that's this vulnerable thing where she's like, "You're like, oh, he could Arash could attack her in this yeah. moment," and then the acting, just the blocking of that scene the the slowness with which she has to turn around it's so unnaturally slow and it doesn't look like the film has been slowed down it looks like literally an actor taking micro steps slowly around Mm -hmm. and she's so clued into the character i would i'd be surprised if she was like thinking just about the steps but it is so choreographed and it is so tense in that moment so i don't know does that how does that complicate your your dancing yeah actually i I had thought about it before a little bit but you're making it all click um there's kind of two there are two foil couples right because there's hussein and ati in a way and and i think uh saeed is part of that world of the that their the worlds are just fucked up right and ati does this thing too where she has to dance for hussein Mm -hmm. as a sex worker he's paying her to dance for him and it's it's joyless right. and it is sexy, but it's like, yeah, it's kind of it's like it's all about the gaze and he gets to look at her because he's paying and, and has dominance and in this kind of classic yeah. um gendered uh relationship. Um and then afterwards he forcibly penetrates her with uh this uh yeah, her heroin needle. So that's just like absolute awful, <sighs> you know, uh, gendered Horrible. violence that dancing is involved with. In some ways, when Saeed is dancing for um, the girl, she's reversing that gaze, right? She gets to look at him while he performs sexually for her. So that's mm-hmm. also a kind of moment of, of her power. Um, and the fact that like dancing has this utopian edge with like Arash and her, it's still tense because I think, like Madeline was saying, there's always a threat of those relationships that seem like they're going in a sort of utopian direction to fall back into that, you know, into that that violent dynamic. Um, so, uh, so the the rave dancing and the and the uh, date dancing is not diametrically opposed from the sort of rape dancing, you know, and the and the and the violence dancing. So, I think it's it's a really mm-hmm. loaded signifier. There's so much of it in there. Um, it's just like all this beauty. And they're all pervaded. They're all wordless scenes that are just pervaded by so much atmosphere of of sort of intensity, emotional intensity. So it's like all the sort of loadedness of both like fear and desire are like in those dance scenes really strongly, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I want to go back to the question about vampires um 
So Lestat seems to me like a pretty classic vampire, right? Um, And one of the things that we talked about in that episode was like the history of the vampire as a kind of capitalist allegory and, you know, like Lestat specifically, like moving from plantation to plantation, like sucking them dry and going to the next one. Um, I was really interested in like how the girl was messing with specifically um, the class dynamic of that, of that trope. And I think like, yeah, you said Robin Hood. I was like, I don't know why I hadn't, I hadn't thought of Robin Hood because it's so clearly one of the kind of meta narratives here with like the moral code and like the economic redistribution of her, of her kind of vampire practice or whatever. <laughs> but I was just thinking about like the witch, right. And how it was kind of mashing up some elements of witchiness with the vampire mm. or something like that. So I was just wondering if, if you had anything to say about that or like, what does it mean to do like a specifically like, feminist version of the vampire because I agree that the vampire is like classically queer, but it's also extremely homosocial, like, you know, male queer, right. And penetrative and these kinds of things. Like, so I don't know what, what are your thoughts about, about this? I don't know if you know that much about, like, I don't associate like your things with horror with like specifically vampires, but I know that yeah, yeah I mean, I think, you, you know, I mean, obviously, more. and the witch isn't isn't so. <laughs> vampire, but I do think, um, you know, I don't like to kind of go back to directors and who they are as like the sort of meaning of the film. But the fact that like, you know, young women are getting to direct more horror films. I mean, like if, you know, you looked back 20 years, you know, it would be all, you know, men directing these films and creating them. And I mean, I think that like mm-hmm. people who read horror the way that I do always read the monster as the the hero in a way. I mean, if we're going to talk about heroes or, you know, as the the point of identification of the thing that has to be repressed and othered in order for normality to kind of persist. And so if you're going to try to make a feminist mm-hmm. horror film in my book, you want to make the 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 woman the monster not the the monster slayer you know as as much as i like buffy <laughs> but you know it's just like, <laughs> um but so i think she <laughs> kind of like retools like you were saying you know all the sort of um queerness and sort of um complications of, and of violence and and the outsider persona of the vampire and sort of claims it um, for this sort of outsider woman of color who's between worlds and like, and both like she plays Mm -hmm. a lot by the rules, like the figure can't eat. I'm pretty sure she has to be invited in. We see little moments where she's getting invited in. Right. So she's, she's continuing the the rules. She's only out at night. She's cold to the touch. She's only out at night. Right. She's cold to the touch. No. And she doesn't eat the persimmon either. She'll take it, but she won't eat it. So, but she's, you know, uh, mm-hmm. using that and, and she's sort of sexy and mysterious and um, you know and violent but you know it's all kind of repurposed to kind of tell the story of, of how it feels to be between these worlds as a you know as a woman of color who is 
you know, learned Persian when she was growing up, but also like came into being through like watching Madonna and Michael Jackson and, and, and is this fusion of all these different cultures that are never narrated <laughs> in any film, you know, ever. So she, she's like the one that has to invent the language to talk mm -hmm. about it. And she does it through monstrosity, which I think is so, so cool, you know, in that way. So. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also interesting that in terms of the rules for the vampires, mm -hmm. she is wet. She's just like, you know, the, the 10 commandments of vampires, ALA just takes them and is just like, okay, we accept these. These are the rules. Whereas like interview with the vampire, you know, what is it about? Like fucking garlic or crosses or something that like right from the beginning, yeah. Brad Pitt is like, Oh, those are such, I actually love gazing on crucifixes. And like, to me, interview with the vampire is a way more traditional vampire mm -hmm. movie, but this is like way stricter with the rules of being a vampire and yet mm -hmm. gets so far away from like everything. Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk about the obvious vampires. reference, but the let the right one in is really like has a similar mood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen it for a long time, but it, I was just, yeah, it's ask. very adult. <laughs> I think in that it just doesn't have to explain everything to you. It's like, you know, the genre here's a mood and here's connotations and you right. do with those, you know, what, what, what the film feels like rather than me, like didactically explain, explaining to you how you're supposed to interpret this film, I think is, is, is a very kind of grown up way to make a film. <laughs> um, yeah. well, I love this movie so much more than let the right one in though. I mean, I haven't seen that in quite some time either, but just, um, just the racist, the sheer racist, like, Xenophobic oh really? I haven't seen it for a long time. I for, I, I right didn't realize that you know. Uh, um, just this, like you uh, know, because she's because she's non-white. She's a kind of immigrant figure, right? And um, her like essentially immigrant status is um, a really important feature of that plot too, right? Like the the escape mm -hmm. in the end too. Um, that she has to be like smuggled in this sense. Um, and she's in this kind of like all white universe. So like the kinds of anxieties that that film is toying with, you know, I, I appreciate that that's not, that that's not going on here. Um, and that instead, you know, we're thinking it's like this town is kind of, cursed with many many things and she right. is just one of them right yeah. it's not like she is the like the secret source of like all of this mm. horror that no one can quite put their finger on which is i think kind of more the dynamic in let the right one in and like i think even more you know heroin is the is what's plaguing this this town oh my um, god i just thought realized that there's a ah, pun yes. ripe mm -hmm. there with heroin. What? Just that, that <laughs> she, you know, heroes and villains, she's a fucking <laughs> is she a oh, heroin hero you know what oh, I mean? Yeah, I like see. yeah. Jesus, yeah. That just hit me. I don't know. I I'd be curious, you know, sidebar, like 
we'll talk about let, let the right one in some other time if you like. But I'd, I'd be curious if either of you revisited that film. I've never seen it and seen I really it. want oh, to. Really? It's on my list and I like really. But it was interesting when you said you were surprised how unscary this movie is. Because I like can I get that. And also that's been kind of uh, like this past year has been my real like deepest jump into horror movies and Mm -hmm. realizing how few of them are viscerally viscerally scary has been kind of one of the big surprises for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm always interested. Yeah. But I think speaking of other horror movies, I think this might be a good time to draw in your Dawn of the Dead piece, Joe. Mm. Um, because and and so one of these, I, I talked to you about these sort of mic drop moments that I was reading, and I'm like, man, if I'm you, I'm like really myself here. Um, is uh, it's early, it's early on in the piece. You say the temptation of our moment is to place our hopes for the left on charismatic leaders. Dawn, as in Dawn of the Dead, reminds us that it is not heroic individuals, but collective action that will star in our hoped for future. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't even want to try to tie this directly to Girl Walks Home Alone at Night unless either of you have ties. But the thing that this – the idea of of heroes as charismatic leaders, right, even like – you know, the lessons of like the Black Panther Party or like the civil rights movement of like Malcolm X, MLK, Fred Hampton, that like having charismatic leaders kind of leaves you open to attack by like, like filtering all this power into those leaders. At the same time, I have made possibly the mistake of professionally you Charisma got is like speech, the main thing I've owned. You know what I mean? That's like most of my... I don't know what my... you're talking about. <laughs> well, but I'm saying like... I don't like... know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just saying like, <laughs> oh no. Like turns out this, it turns out this is like anti-revolutionary, this skill set that I've built. You know what I mean? And I'm like curious. Um... But you're not a leader. You're not trying to be a leader. So. <laughs> I'll follow you, Dave. Where are we going? Where are we going? Uh, <laughs> <a great> job, <laughs> <and it's... laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just I, <laughs> I'm just saying like my 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 brain defaults to like prescriptions, so I'm not actually asking for a prescription. But I'm curious uh, if either of you have thoughts about like yeah, like this this y- you know the the danger of having charismatic leaders, the power of not having charismatic leaders, and what you know, those people who would be charismatic leaders, like where best well, I think to in the filter Dawn that energy. Piece, one of my know? points was like, hmm. like the main characters, they actually become kind of heroic when they're one with the collective. Like they're the, these kind of news anchors and, and uh, you know, two of the, two of them at least. And when there's like a revolt in the newsroom against this like false information about the zombie apocalypse and they're, they're, doing activism with all these other kind of young people who are sort of visually coded, like, you know, uh, sort of activists of the time, then they can access their sort of heroic, um, you know, parts of them. And I I think, you know, that then they, when they 
are in the like isolated fighting the zombie hordes in the mall, then they sort of turn into these, you know, sort of reactionary individualistic kind of consumers. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that, you know, basically we, we always have to mm -hmm. sort of find that collective energy and act with it rather than try to need it, you know, try to, to start it or be the, at the head of it or, you know, to, to follow, like, you know, if, if people are organizing around, you know, the killing of George Floyd, like you don't say, no, we should do something else. You know, you go and you, you try to be like useful to that, to that movement. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I, I don't know, that was sort of, um, you know, my reading mm -hmm. of of some of that some of the the connotations of that film um of, of just showing you know these kinds of um ways that we're sort of hmm. conditioned to see those rioting masses as villains when actually they're that's often where the revolutionary energy is um and and we have to see it that way you know kind of thing right mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. building up the thing you're talking about of like the monsters being super relatable. I mean, like, you know, even like through a disability lens, like zombies are disabled. Vampires are disabled like this. Like it's once you see it, it's really hard to unsee how easy yeah, well, it is Yeah, we had like a, this thing called Festival every, of Monsters like, in Santa monster Cruz. And in we, we had it two years in a row. But the first year when I went, where I'm like, cool, I'm going to go to this thing. We're going to talk about monsters. Pretty much everyone, we were just talking about disability studies because that's where the energy is for thinking about these monsters, you know. So it's very, yeah, wow. I, I totally agree with what you're saying there, that that, that is sort of underexplained explored but it's sort of on everybody's mind as and and one of the things for monsters i like this guy uh mm. jeffrey cone uh jeffrey jerome cone who has like seven theses on monsters and one of the key things is that you can't really contain them like if it's hmm. if it's a cool. seems like if the monster is queer you, it, it's always like exceeding boundaries so like you can't really contain the the queered monster from the disabled from the classed monster you know that they're they're always sort of bleed these categories are bleeding into each other and that's why the monster is mm, also yes, so potent yes. rather than like a, a, a fixed personality of a hero that's fighting those monsters that can only be kind of one thing you know kind of thing I love that. Yeah, I mean, that's why contagion is so, um, you know, so important to, to all of these. They're, the vampire and the zombie are, like, so distinct. And I do think, like, the vampire is a far more, like, bourgeois, individualist mm -hmm. monster trope, right? But um, but the contagion element is, is, really, um, is really evocative. I don't know. Um, I was thinking about that with, okay, so when we watched Interview with the Vampire, we were thinking a lot about, I don't know if you know the history of, like, their attempts to make that movie, but, you know, the AIDS crisis, like, popped up in the in the midst of that. And so it was a real question, like, how do we, how do we represent the vampire in this context? And I was thinking, AIDS isn't, isn't really anywhere in this film, but... Um, heroin is such an interesting analogy and like addiction specifically as her predicament. I mean, I, I kind of really read that moment with the, the homeless man, like 
as a moment of addiction. Like she's, she's struggling with an addiction. Mm. Right. Um, and I don't know. I mean, like one of the more interesting, I mean, if you're, if you're an alcoholic, you can stop drinking. Right. Um, but I relate much more to like food addiction issues, right. Which are so much harder to figure out. Right. Like so you, you cannot, obviously you cannot live without food. And so like, you're going to have to be interacting with this thing. How do you reimagine your relationship to it? Or actually, can you It's just something that you're going to have to fucking deal with because it's an actual necessity um, as well as an addiction. And you can't disentangle those things from each other. Right. And I think the vampire in this film really, you know, those those problems are really resonating for me. I mean, that that's kind of Louis's struggle too, right? Where it's like that he needs blood, right? Um, what's he, what's he going to do with that? If he's still to think of himself as somehow like a moral subject or a quote human. Um, but I found the addiction analogy really, really intense and I don't think that I've ever seen a vampire representation really um, framed yeah, I think that would be cool. in those kinds Go of ahead, terms yeah. so clearly. That's really it. I No, I didn't. I mean, as a fucking recovery guy, I didn't think of, I mean, obviously Hussein's shit with the drugs, but I did not think of the girl's, uh, vampirism as addiction. And that really mm. does make sense of, um, of that, that attacking the homeless guy moment. And it makes, um, I mean, if I'm going to get like very like programmy about it, it makes that moment against the car near the train tracks when she and Arash are talking and talking about what they've done. It's like, a um, it's not quite an amends, but it is like a very mm-hmm. much like there's a part in the AA big book that's like, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. So mm-hmm. it's like very clearly looking. It's like, I'm not pretending I did not attack that guy. I'm not saying, oh, I'm an addict. That's the reason I had to like drink his blood. I'm saying it exists. And I'm saying, you don't know all the terrible things I've done. And I'm labeling them as terrible, but I'm also like here and I'm looking to move forward with you. And like all of these things exist at once and yet is, I don't know, maybe moral is the right word. Like moral action. Is that still possible moving forward? I mean, I would say it is. uh, And part of not shutting the door on those things is what makes it moral action. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm curious your thoughts about that i just think it would be so interesting madeline to like look at films through food addiction because especially like a teenage Mm -hmm. girl um being an an addict i mean like i don't think very many people didn't have food issues that i've met that were were teenage (sighs) girls and like it's sort of fascinating because what makes like vampires sexy is they don't eat and it's like a message that we get is like what is sexy never eating right and so then Mm -hmm. 
heroin, heroin chic, chic, right? right? Yeah. So then the idea that, but they actually have to eat blood to survive. So is it really true that they don't eat? I don't know. I just, that just struck me as like a sort of fascinating. Right. And there's a movie, it's not a vampire movie, but it's called Raw. That's a cannibalism movie. That's also about a teenage girl kind of mm. coming to realize that she really likes to eat human flesh that has a similar <laughs> uh, feel to it that could could kind of like use it that metaphor could be really interesting, like overlaid on it. Isn't that the one you talked about on the cannibalism podcast? No, I did a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I did the classic. Oh, that's right. They did talk about it on that show. I think, I think, I don't know if I heard that one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think so. I, yeah. Shout out to. I love those guys. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It's a really fun. I'm going on. I'm talking about flux. Oh, Oh, that's so cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah, Excited. excited. Say hi for me. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I will. But I think another genre thing to tie this stuff to is something that ALA is very like intentional about or like very like upfront about is calling it a fairy tale and a dark Mm -hmm. fairy tale. And I think that is, you know, the, the crudest way to tie the like monster stuff together between Dawn of the Dead and this is just like, yeah, there are very like as as muddy as they can get. In each moment, there are clear there. Well, no, I was gonna say there are clear stakes, but in Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, that that ambiguity is constantly there. So, so maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, the the ambiguity as as standing out against, you know, these other fairy tales that are less ambiguous, uh, mm-hmm. just makes it a different kind of fairy tale, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she's even got kind of the chowder could be seen as kind of like a little red riding hood kind of thing or you know this kind of yeah like a right. fairy tale kind of uh apparel i guess um well and speaking of that what do you make of the i i mean i'm like i, th- I think most of the the stuff i like made note of we're, we're kind of like coming to the end where we've sucked it dry so if either of you have other stuff to say now, now's the time, but I would be remiss not to mention that moment with the kid, which is the mm-hmm. mo- a very fairy tale moment where she's like, well, she gets his skateboard and she's, and it's one of those, you're like, is she going to kill this fucking kid? Cause he's a yeah. dude. And she just instead is like, yo, I'm going to be watching you for your whole life. So you better act right. I don't know if she says it quite like that. It yeah, she says, I could suck your eyeballs like, out and feed them to dogs. I could suck your I think, eyeballs But I think the, I think the subtext like is there. <laughs> Not like, yo, give me your skateboard. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down in my notes, is she Santa? <laughs> like, <laughs> it has that kind of <laughs> amazing You better watch effect. out. Yeah, I'll be watching you. <laughs> yeah that's what again it's another moment where it's like i love because it's like that's what monsters are supposed to be they're the people that scare Mm -hmm. the shit out of Mm -hmm. kids and like you know when you when like i asked my students about like like their experience of la llorona it's like oh yeah my parents told me that she would get me Mm -hmm. if i didn't do what they said i to do um so it's a very classic like sort of monster position and i mean i I feel like it's being very careful not to not make her a monster like she's genuinely scary but at the same time you can read it like don't turn into these men that are patriarchs i'm watching you your Mm -hmm. whole life kind of thing um and i think that also that moment 
addresses what your question we kind of left behind of like, what are the people in the town? What are their familiarity is like, it kind of seems to me like no one ever talks to her. She just lurks mm-hmm. around and they're all scared of her mm-hmm. kind of thing. Or at least that's the boy's relationship. And he's maybe it's like even just kids that can kind of see her because Hussein didn't seem to really or or, or Saeed didn't seem to really know to be scared of her. So I don't think everyone knows right. like who she is, but it seems like maybe she's just this figure that kind of like it's like a children's sort of myth that they kind of see around and try to avoid kind of thing or something in this very right. kind of fairy tale way. So Or a classic skateboarder, just like oh, that's one of those little skater kids that. Well, she get, she she get, she gets his skateboard, and that's like I know, I her know. mobility. Now she's mobile. <laughs> right, right. Which uh, I guess Amanpour did the skating because she's Amanpour did the skating because that's she's she's like a lifelong skater for the for the actor. I know. So she, cool. She's that's badass. So cool. Yeah. I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> um, you were just bringing up Little Red Riding Hood, and I was actually just reading the Grimm's Brothers. Um, version the other day um for research purposes but um i was also reading this like children's literature scholar joseph zornado and he's i'm like pulling up a quote conveniently but he says that little red little red riding cap or little excuse me little red cap is the original name Mm. was um is a failed kind of a failed fairy tale for the ways that it um it refuses to work as a cautionary tale so he says that um it fails to caution the child about the real conditions of her existence um danger and destruction do not visit the child as a result of disobedient or transgressive acts like you know for instance the willful child or something like that Rather, the wolf claims the child as his own, even as the child obeys and walks the path. It's like, <laughs> no matter what, you're a child, mm-hmm. you are fucked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's like adult domination uh, from every corner, right? So I don't know. I think it's like, it's kind of interesting in that regard as a fairy tale because you're not, other than that moment where she tells that little boy, like, you better be good, Right. Um, there isn't really a clear caution you're right taking away from it, right? And that that last scene is obviously a really like amazing opportunity to have done that move, and it just yeah doesn't, <laughs> you know. So I really like that, um, and I think that that's kind of like what it's doing with genre overall too. It's it's like okay, I'll like. I'll work by the rules of the vampire. I'll do all these things. And yet still, it's not going to be that, right? Um, It has that, like, really interesting element of refusal that's going on. I don't know. Yeah. And personally, I'm pretty allergic to moral horror films. I like them to be structural. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it's withholding from that. And And also, again, that wide lens and the kind of background of these sort of oil pumps and power stations and things like that just so like bad city i think you guys said this but bad city is going to be bad right it's not mm-hmm. it's not like those two this young couple in love can somehow fix you know <laughs> yeah the, yeah um you know there's 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 structural problems to be addressed well and i'm at the same time as it doesn't like offer a clear moral 
it does <laughs> as ambiguous as the ending is and i'm here for talking about it i find it to be a relatively very happy ending and other than the cabinet of curiosities entry I find that to be the case with her other movies too, is these like Hmm. very bleak worlds with like kind of really happy endings. Like you're like, wait, what the fuck? Like that, that ending came out of that movie. Like which, which is like such a nice guard against the saccharine that we've seen so much shit up to that point. But like, I don't know, like what are, what are the possibilities of that ending, do you read it as happy or no? I think mm. it's happy. I mean, I think uh, she's really good at working on two registers at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like um, the 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 love story is like clearly a fantasy for all the reasons we've said that it's like kind of the way it's filmed and curated as the imagination of somebody who lives in a dream world to kind of escape their uh sort of invisibility and otherness you know and 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 it rewards fantasy right with uh with love you know but at the same time it never lets you imagine that it's not a fantasy so you're at the same time that you they get to be together and there and there's a happiness to it there's also a way in which you never think that this is yeah something that 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 isn't necessarily just a, a sort of fantasy of uh, somebody who's like in a really bleak place right and it's also kind of punctured with the silliness of the cat which i like oh, <laughs> that's so good. the cat just sitting there between them like yeah this is what's happening now. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so nice to have a horror movie where where the animal does not die i know <laughs> too many dead animals yeah you so never great. worry about that in that film. It's nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Madeline, you seemed to have a more complicated, like it seemed, am I reading right that you felt like it was less of a pure happy ending? Yeah, I don't think it was pure. But I think Joe's right. It's it's two at once. It's two registers at once, right? It's like yeah. you can you can have that happiness, but not without the dread, the fear, the possibility of violence, you know, that that it's not one without the other, right? And that I think that's kind of beautiful. It's like that actually happiness is kind of unknowable without those conditions, you know? Um, so there's something, something quite lovely about that. I mean, I don't know. I was thinking about... Oh, there's a beating heart in this film, but like a beating heart, you know, she'll, <laughs> she'll have to pray <laughs> on at some point. Yeah. Or, you know, that there's a, it definitely, um, I don't know. It's jarring, but I can't think of a more perfect way to end it. I really, I really liked it. I think, um, it worked as a kind of microcosm of, of everything going on. And it really could so. be where, he, you know, they stay together 30 years from now, he becomes an abusive guy or a, a week from now, her like desires overtake her and she sinks her teeth into him. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I think that it could be those that. Yeah. dangers, like make it because it is almost like the collapse, like they drive off together. It's such a fucking 
like you could write the ambiguous ending of this movie mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yet the the threats that underpin it make the ambiguity like actually really hit mm-hmm. should yeah. we reveal a genre i'm down yeah i'm with it wants to go first i i i had a genre uh picked out beforehand i've been doing that more this this season i've stuck with my picked out beforehand genre but i'm open if uh joe or madeline would you like to go first i'll get mine over with it's very simple but the cat is a good through line for it okay it's witch pyre (laughs) okay love it Love it. It's that the really genre of well. character and film. Okay. Okay. Cool. 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 <laughs> um, Joe, do you do you have one? Uh, I failed pretty bad with my. I just couldn't because they already with all the, the sort of hybrid titles for it. I felt, but I did. Okay, I made one called Central California Subaltern Gothic Spaghetti Western. <laughs> I did want to point out. I did really think that it was very Central California, and and Mm -hmm. and and it's filmed there. She grew up there, um, and it's a very sort of uh, diasporic, non non white place that would be very weird to grow up that way. And that's who all my students are. So I I'm very fascinated with that. So I think that should become a genre of like uh, like Central California subaltern gothic spaghetti westerns what is where was it filmed where was it filmed in central california um she's from bakersfield it was a place uh, she's from Bakersfield. yeah she grew up in bakersfield yeah exactly right like imagine (laughs) um but it's a smell of dead cows everywhere that's what bakersfield okay yeah and bleakness like the you know that city yeah and and oil you know yeah agriculture and pumps and yeah Mm -hmm. okay go for it dave no wait. What's the? Tell me. No, I just don't yeah, know. Okay. I know the word subaltern. I don't actually know what subaltern means. Um. Well, I I know it from like there's this Spivak essay. Can the subaltern speak? And it gets used a lot, especially oh, to talk okay. about the veil and like the ways that it's fantasized and the ways that it like words kind of cover over like what people are actually thinking because there's so much projected onto women wearing the veil. So um, she's just using the veil um, or, you know, the chatter in a way that is really pushing against that sort of uh, overlay of discourse on women on the veil to kind of say something different about it so that's why i thought okay. that was a, a good i love yeah. that i Thank love you. that and then it's also like does the subaltern have to speak yeah. <laughs> it's like in this in this context right like just thinking about her quietness and how much volume there is in that you know it's it's actually like that's a really generative connection yeah the subaltern chomps <laughs> Does the subaltern chomp? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my genre is um, I, I sent both of you this clip beforehand because uh, I mm-hmm. I was like it would be fun to have a skateboarding reference here. I'm not the biggest skater guy or anything, but um, I watched the Tony Hawk documentary like in the last year that came out on HBO Max and and. It was like it was That's okay, we forgive you. You you have a problem with Tony Hawk? 
Oh my God! Who did Tony Hawk cheat on? Did he cheat on Emma Thompson? What's What's the gossip Emma about to- Tony oh Hawk? God. You won't let go. You're, of my you're of Kenneth Branagh. No, I just saw a Kenneth Branagh movie. I'm okay, not. I'm Team fine. Emma Thompson as well. Never. Um, okay, it good. was a it was a rough. I movie. don't think that I really like the idea that Tony Hawk. And <laughs> I watched that uh, a foreignish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was like it was fine. But it talked about his pursuit of uh, the nine hundred, which is you know it's just like yeah, a tell us what the nine hundred is the not, the nine hundred is just twisting nine hundred degrees. So it's a uh, it's a it's. Two in the full revolution in the air. Two full revolutions. It's a it's two three sixties and a one eighty. So it's you know you're going around around and then back and you're landing. What is that in ice skating? What would we call that? Like a triple axel, right? Is that is that what it is? I don't know. I think that's. What that I think it would be like a two and a half axel. Anyway, well, I watched I Tanya in the last year too, so. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we forgive you. Yeah, he's he's the Tanya of skating. I Tanya is good, man. It's yeah, really good. that's what everyone it's says is Tony Hawk no, is the Tanya a, Harding of skating. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, so but so this this so this trick he was like pursuing it forever, and it was like thought to be impossible. Never before in history competition have we seen a nine hundred, and it involves so much effort, so much so that um, at the like it was at the X Games that Tony Hawk finally executed a 900 and he did it like it was it's in the like half pipe and he did it i mean in the documentary they make it seem like he was trying dozens of times trying it so many times i started to feel like this could be the ultimate disappointment you know if i if i just can't do it <laughs> so that's why i was willing to just stick it at any cost you know if, if it meant that i was going to get taken out and taken to the hospital um so be it, you know, it was worth the effort. You see him fall and fall and fall and like almost land it. 900! 900! Oh! No way! And all his fellow skaters are like banging their skateboards on the half pipe and they're like cheering him on. We all just wanted to get behind him and, and see him do it. And then he does it. Are you kidding me? And you see in the air, it's just this like super tight, just like, and he like comes down and he almost falls again, but he just like swoops and his hand touches the ground. He stays on the skateboard. He realized, you know, that he had done it. Madeline made fun of the, rightly made fun of the fact that in this clip that I sent both of you, he says, thank you. This is the best day of my life. I swear to God. As he then goes and hugs his wife and kids. But, you know, I don't know. I appreciate the honesty. It was pretty funny. But I so to me, it's the the high effort level of this movie, the the grace. There is some literal spinning in like the disco ball scene and the dancing uh, and that it actually lands it. So to me, the genre of this movie is Tony Hawk's 900. Ooh, that's high praise from you. From us, it would be meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Well, I did appreciate great. in that clip though all the other skaters. Getting back to our thing about heroes mm-hmm. and the charismatic leader, mm-hmm. that they were just like, we don't, 
care that this is a competition. Yeah. We just want to witness this thing happening. Yeah, that was right. That, that was, was actually sweet. kind of yeah. powerful. Totally. I liked that. Totally. And then all those bros, like, you know. Yeah, these, uh, like, California. Whoa, California dudes. California. They're crying. Who knows how many no! Bakersfield residents like, there were. Many, maybe she. I, I kept thinking was she really was gonna pop beautiful. up in the video because I was like, "Why did Dave send this? <laughs> <laughs> so like, is she in the audience?" <laughs> oh, that is so funny. Yeah, just this figure. Um, ALA in that Corman interview talks about uh, her being like kind of a stingray with that uh, mm. the chador behind her and uh, ooh stingray. Yeah, it's like cool. That. So, um, well, this That's was cool. great. I'll, I'll be sure not to delete this episode. I may have to um, don a cape and come get you if you do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that might be an inspiration. Don't don't tempt me to. I'll be I'll be, I'll be watching be you in my apartment dancing like Saeed until you. Come. Yeah, I definitely will extract a dance if you mess with one. <laughs> well, yeah, this was, this was. I love this movie. Love talking to you. The the dawn of the dead piece is fucking brilliant and uh yeah i just had a blast so yeah do you have have anything you want to tell people to do in relationship to your work oh well i always like it when you buy my book or madeline's book from common notions um yes a step for daughters weapons for feminists and contemporary horror hell yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, buy our books. That's good. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. But otherwise, and read our journal, Blindfield. Yes, there's that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Read Blindfield, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. (laughs) If someone has a connection to Anna Lily Amirpour, please tell her to come on my other podcast, This Is Your Afterlife. I need. Absolutely. I need it. And Chester Cheeto. (laughs) If anybody has a Chester Cheeto connection. (laughs) Then what? What should they do? Hook it up. Hook what? Hook us up with. We each. I want to interview him. Five cases of. I want to interview it. No, I don't want to eat that. David, David and I are going to make you watch us eat. I'm down. (laughs) We are speaking of. uh... I just want to talk to him. I want to understand where he's coming from. You know. I just want to talk, man. I just, I just want to talk. No, no offense. You'll have to include a link to that creepy commercial somehow. And yeah, I know. Yeah. Instead, instead of this, okay, actually instead, because this movie's all in Farsi, maybe I will just start the episode with the Chester Cheetah commercial. That's good. That's uh, good. Yeah. And, and we'll have some context for that. Yeah. This is our second corporate sponsor, Joe. What's the first? Ghost. It's called Sa- Ghost Sa- Sour Energy. Patch Kids Blue Raspberry Ghost Energy Drink. It's fucking yeah. gnarly. It was fueling is it blue? Dave. Like bright blue? It's not bright yeah. blue. It's clear, oh. but it tastes bright oh. blue. Well, that's just as bad. It tasted blue via Zoom, also for me. Just watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are we're we are not actually sponsored by every like teenage stoner kid, uh, you know, snack. That that's that's our that's our demographic. That's our niche. Excellent. That's what makes us appeal to. 11 to 14 year olds or and the skater the skate kids yeah the skate yeah kids exactly 
<laughs> they like get, the way get we your work reference. it. So. <laughs> yeah, they like the way we work it. Well, skate kids, <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>